Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of the Mead podcast from Gosnells. This episode is about one of my favourite subjects, all about honey. Um, and it actually turns out there's so much to talk about, we're going to split this into a couple of episodes. I'm here joined with my colleague Ted. Hi Ted, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Um, I've actually been off on holiday sunning myself, so Ted's been doing most of these interviews, along with our head brewer Will, a new voice of the podcast. So on this episode, we're talking to a couple of people. The first person is Ian. Um, who's a keen amateur beekeeper and I actually met him oh probably five six years ago when I was trying to source some beeswax to finish off one of our bars in the tasting room and he kindly helped us out um, and has been a friend to the business ever since um, and then following on from that we're talking to the guys from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology uh, out in Oxfordshire um, and they do some really exciting research around what honeybees are actually eating um, I'm really puzzled pushing on the research to, to find out what the bees have been up to and how they're doing in general, which is really exciting. But before that, we're talking to Ian. So let's get going, Ted. So we're joined here by Ian, our previous assistant brewer. How are you doing, Ian? I'm um, good, thanks, Ted. Good to hear from you. Really, really glad and really happy to have you on the podcast. So Ian, how did you get into beekeeping? So I really got into beekeeping because um, I was interested from a young age and uh, even as a toddler I remember my mum rooms me in the garden sort of uh, seeing bumblebees and, and stroking them. Um, and then when I went to secondary school I um, uh, two of my teachers kept bees so my chemistry teacher and my history teacher kept bees and uh, we used to try and distract them in class by asking about the bees so we learnt more about bees than we often did about chemistry or history. Um, and then uh, I was always sort of hankered after having some of my own and finally um, about just over 10 years ago I, I took the plunge and, and got my own bees. And, uh, and why is it that you find bees so interesting? Ah, oh, they are the most incredible creatures. Um, so bees have the most complex um, communication systems, they are absolutely fascinating the way they uh, the way they cooperate in the hive, the way they make communal decisions, um, harvesting sort of the hive mind, as it were. Um, also, their kind of uh, the work ethic, um, and also the fact they make some delicious honey. So all of these things kind of uh, have made me sort of interested in in bees. Nice. Well, we're, we're all interested in bees here at Gosnells. Um, we, we've been working with uh, making these beehives for Dunwich Picture Gallery, um, in which we have been teaching kids how uh, honey is made and how bees uh, interact in the hive. And I mean, I personally found it so fascinating, um, learning about bees and things that I didn't even know myself, working in this company for such a long time. Um, but it really was, it really was interesting. How, in your best words, how, how do bees make honey? How do bees make honey? Great question. Um, so. Bees make honey by um, collecting nectar. So they, the bee will go to a flower and it will connect, um, it will suck up the nectar in its proboscis, so it's, it's like a, a tube-like tongue, um, and it carries that nectar back to the hive. Once it gets back to the hive, it passes that nectar to another bee, a kind of housekeeper bee, who receives uh, the, gro the groceries coming home if you like um, and then it gets passed through a series of bees and then eventually it gets stored in the honeycomb so each time the honey or the nectar gets passed from bee to bee they add some enzymes uh, in particular they add something called invitase 
which breaks uh, the sugar molecules from long saccharide chains into monosaccharides, so into fructose and glucose. Um, so simple, simple sugars. Um, and it's the addition of the enzymes and also reducing the water content because nectar is slightly sweet but it's quite watery so the bees have to really work hard to reduce the water content to get it below 17 percent so once it's below that 17 percent it's nice and thick you know like honey we we would know they put it into the cells and they cap it over um, and the, the wax capping means that it uh, it stays nice and fresh in the cell and it doesn't pick up any moisture from the atmosphere that's how they make honey already i've learned things i didn't know about bees so that's that's amazing ian how's how's the season looking so far um for, for honey and harvesting honey so this season uh for me has been okay um so, <laughs> talking to beekeepers they traditionally go oh bad season mm, not very good this year you know um but it's, the season's not been not been too bad this year thanks that's good that's really good to hear um, I mean, I think the question that people want to know really is how are bees doing in general? Uh, we know that bees are, you know, save the bees is a big thing. Um, how are they doing in general? Are bees dying off or are they uh, living on strong or getting better? Yeah, this is the kind of uh, number one question that, that people are asking at the moment. Um, and it's a bit of a tricky one to, to answer, really, because um, when you talk about bees, that kind of includes... Um, solitary bees bumblebees you know within britain there's something like 250 different species of bee alone so um honeybees are just kind of one kind of subgroup of that um honeybees are kind of lucky in a way that they've got humans to kind of manage them and if they you know risk starvation we're there to feed them or if they get sick you know we, we can sort of treat them and that sort of thing so uh honeybees are kind of are kind of the lucky ones um that the kind of more unlucky ones are the kind of solitary bees and uh, and some of the bumblebees and they're really suffering um yeah so uh, oh wow it's a it's a bit of a, a hostile environment for them at the moment and, w- and what is it we can do to actually to actually help the bees um is there something that we can do as humans um you know change our change our everyday lives or cut down on certain things how can we actually help the bees that's a great question, Ted. Yeah, um, how to help the bees? Well, one of the big things that's affecting bees is their environment, and uh, so the the kind of food that they have to eat. Uh, what beekeepers we call forage. So um, bees need a real large diversity of of food. Um, there are lots of different uh, amino acids which help the bees build their bodies. Um, all living things are kind of made out of these amino acids and the bees are, bees are just like that, us in that way. Um, so they need to get all their uh, protein, uh, the source of the amino acids, from pollen. Um, and you'll probably have seen bees sort of visiting flowers and coming back with these great big yellow uh, beads sort of stuck on their legs and that's, uh, that's pollen. So the pollen um, gets taken back to the hive and then the, uh, the worker bees... Uh, store it for use later on and uh, they use the pollen to to feed the the bees when they're young to the larval bees um, when they're still developing their bodies and that's really really essential um, for 
the life of the life of the bee so it has the right nutrients when it's young when it's growing developing um, <clears throat> and having that right nutrients um, means that you have a healthy colony a healthy hive healthy bees now if they don't have that then you don't have healthy bees you don't have healthy colonies and, and that's where we sort of run into problems um, we run into problems with other stress factors which otherwise they might they might be able to cope with so obviously the big thing is sort of pesticides and those sort of sorts of things um, now we can't do much about the pesticides other than lobby government and parliament and those sorts of things uh, but the things we can do in our everyday lives is look at environment and look at what the small kind of things we can do and one of the great things we can do is uh, plant wildflowers and it's a great way to get children involved as well so if you plant sort of um, things like lavender and those sorts of things um, and things that will give bees a diversity of food so there's a really great book out on this um, it's called planting for honeybees and it's by sarah windham lewis um, and she's a beekeeper she and her husband are based up in bermondsey um, and uh, that goes into a lot of detail into the sorts of plants and things that uh, are really great for honeybees and and all pollinators really amazing well thank you so much ian yeah that was really interesting um especially what ian was saying about how to, how we can help the bees at home it's actually something we're we're really passionate about here at gosnells we do quite a lot of planting in the brewery and try and make it a much more greener friendlier space and as part of that we discovered these amazing things called seed bombs which you basically sprinkle into your garden and up up grows a load of wildflowers um, and as part of part of our campaign to help the bees over the winter, we're giving away a load of these free seed bombs on our website. So please check it out and sign up. Ted, you've been doing some planting at home. How's that going? Really well. Um, a lot of greenery, not some, not so many flowers at the moment, but um, yeah, they work a charm. So I hope you guys do really enjoy them. Yeah, you are constantly bombarding group with pictures of these flowers. <laughs> okay, so who are we talking to next then, Ted? So next we're talking to Richard and Lindsay from the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology. Um, and they are going to be talking about the project that they're doing, which is uh, the Honey Monitoring Scheme. And it's looking amazing. And I think you guys are really going to find it fascinating what they're doing. So I guess we start off with, uh, can you explain a little bit about what you guys do? So um, Centre for Ecology and Hydrology are an independent, uh, not-for-profit research organisation uh, so we basically carry out science that benefits the environment and society. Uh, now, uh, you might not have heard of Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, but our predecessor bodies have been around actively monitoring the status of biodiversity and the environment in the UK since the 1960s. So we go back a very long way. Uh, we're part of the UK Research and innovation uh so that's the uk ri a national funding agency uh that invests in science and research excellence in the uk and we employ about 450 scientists and support staff at four sites across the uk wow that is that is amazing that is really cool great so we had another question which was uh, why are bees so important to you guys um, i know you guys obviously do a lot of research on them um and what, what, makes them, what, what makes them such an interesting thing to research and to, to be employing such a large amount of scientists and to be around for such a long time, since the 1960s? 
Okay, so uh, bees are important to all of us. Uh, managed honeybees and wild bees um, are the predominant pollinators uh, globally. So they're the most important pollinators of plants globally. Uh, they pollinate about a third of all the food we eat and about 80% of all flowering plants are pollinated by bees. Uh, so many of the vegetables and fruits that contribute to a healthy diet are pollinated by bees. So without bees, we would go hungry, uh, simply put. Um, the value of this pollination service, if, you, if that's what you want to call it, is around 150 billion globally. So they are absolutely essential to the survival of, of um, humans. Uh, globally, there are more honeybees than other types of bees uh, and pollinating insects. So um, they're, the, they're the world's most important pollinator of food crops. And of course, honeybees produce honey. <laughs> Absolutely right. That's the most important thing to us, of course, as well. But <laughs> um, it is incredible what bees get up to and exactly how important they are to humans. It really is. So I just had a little question about um, the research that you're doing in particular. Um, how do you identify what the bees have been eating and sort of, you know, how are you using that information to sort of, you know, move us forward in, in, in our understanding? Yeah, here at CEH, we've um, had the pleasure of developing a new scheme called the Honey Monitoring Scheme. And as part of that, one of our main aims was trying to use honey as a measure of what's going on in the environment outside. So what are the bees foraging on? What are they looking at? What is the honey in the UK composed of? But one of the biggest challenges is actually getting that information out of the honey. So here at CEH, we've um, got a molecular team working on it. And we're able first, you have to be able to get those pollen grains and also the other information. So uh, honey is largely made up of nectar, which wouldn't necessarily always show up. So we use something which actually targets the DNA that's contained within honey. So first of all, we'd get our honey samples. We're then able to filter out a lot of the stuff that we wouldn't want to look at and then are able to get both the pollen grains and DNA attached to those pollen grains. We then uh, sort of basically break apart all the grains, all the cells and all the plant matter that's in there and we access the DNA. Now, using some of our methods, we're also able to target specific regions within that DNA, which is common to plants. And we call that a barcode gene. So we then use some specific small bits of DNA which target that barcode. We then sequence it, which tell us exactly what that DNA is composed of and then put it and mark it against the database we have of all the plants that have been in the UK and or that we know of that we've got sequences for in the UK rather. And then we can compare it to that so that we know from our little bit of sequence what else it could compare to. Wow. Yeah, that's really That is really interesting. <laughs> uh, so, so speaking on that, like, what, what interesting things have you found during your research that uh, you weren't sort of expecting or to sort of, are you finding things uh, a little bit more that you, you knew you were looking for, you just wanted some, uh, some reassurance of your, your thesis in that? Yeah, I think what's really quite exciting is we've had a little bit of both. So some of the things we've found are exactly what we would expect. So what's really good for us is we've been able to validate that method because whenever you venture into something new, the first thing you want to do is to check that you actually get what you're expecting. So mm. we'd be really worried if we didn't see a good picture of what we'd expect to find in our honey. So we were able to find oilseed rape. We're able to find rubus, which is also known as brambles, all of which are really, really popular foraging for bees. 
But then also, interestingly, we were able to find some of the more invasive species, which people sometimes sort of say, oh, no, this is a bad thing. But bees seem to be able to use them really well. So we're able to look at Himalayan balsam. And then also in our very first sort of part of results, we've been able to find things that are very targeted to the areas where our honey samples have come from. So, for example, where you're likely to get large areas of heather, we've been able to find that in the honey. And also in certain areas, we've also been able to find things like in London, we're able to find a lot more tree-based pollens and tree-based plants. And it's a lot more of a mixed environment, whereas in large agricultural areas, we've been able to find pollens and DNA that actually relates to the surrounding environment of those areas. That's interesting. Do you, do you find they, that bees then forage in the urban areas on certain things and then obviously in the more sort of countryside areas, they're, they're foraging on completely different things? And do you find they match up at all or is it... I think bees are a really great opportunist. So I think if you put them in the middle of London, then they'll be able to forage on the things around them. They're able to fly quite far. I think it's up to two miles they can fly. Yeah. Yeah, they can fly for a very say. long way. And then they'll come back and they'll communicate within the hive to actually say, this is a good place to go and forage. So then they'll all go out and get the best foraging they can. And so when you get a little picture of the environment from wherever the hive is placed, they'll, they'll be going out to find the best forage locally available so if you put it in an environment where you get lots of oilseed rape the chances are the bees will all fly off find the big oilseed rapes and uh, rape pollens and then come back to the hive whereas if you put it in an urban environment you'd get a lot more of uh, a patchy environment available so they'll make the best of what they have around so be it tree of heaven be it some of the other things you find in more urban environments. So we seem to find the greatest number of different species in some of these uh, urban honeys because that's what's available to the bees. And, uh, and how are bees doing in general, in your, in, in your guys' opinion? In uh, March this year, Centre for Ecology and Hydrology published a study that found that since 1980, a third of British wild bees and hoverfly species have declined in their distribution, which was was quite worrying. And um, in the US, a study showed that nearly 40%, uh, a, de a, a nearly 40% decline in honeybee populations last winter. So again, quite, quite worrying. And um, there, there are several uh, reasons for this bee decline. Uh, most researchers agree that the sort of following factors are important uh, in causing bee declines. Things like uh, habitat loss, intensive agriculture, including the use of, of pesticides, parasites and disease and climate change are all cited as possible causes uh, of these declines in both honeybees and wild bees. And is there anything we can actually do, I mean, for, you know, the average person in the world, what, what can we do to actually help the bees? There are several things um, that people can do to help bees. Uh, bees need three simple things to thrive. They need food, a nest, and water. And um, bees feed on flowers that are rich in nectar uh, and pollen. So nectar contains sugar that they need for energy, and also honeybees make, uh, make uh, honey with that. And pollen, uh, which, is pro which contains protein and oils, which they, they, they use to feed their larvae to, to grow more honeybees or bumblebees um, if, they're, if they're social bees. Uh, so gardeners, farmers, land managers can, can do several things to help. Um, the most important thing they can do is to plant bee-friendly plants in their, in their garden or window box or allotment or, or on their farm. Um, in terms of garden plants, 
Uh, bees really like to visit things like lavender, honeysuckle, mahonia, ivy. They, those, are, those, are, those are garden plants which, which bees very much like to visit. Or gardeners can plant native wildflower species. Similarly, farmers can plant these species as well. Things uh, like clovers or uh, knapweed. Um, also, uh, trees like willow, apple and hawthorn are often visited by bees. Uh, another thing um, people can do is just leave a corner of their garden or allotment to grow wild to encourage species like bramble, which Lindsay mentioned um, earlier. So tall grass um, is, is important uh, for, to allow them to, to sort of overwinter or to, to form nests for, for um, in the following year. Uh, so they're, they're, they're the sorts of things uh, that, that people can do to help bees. Also, if you look on the CEH website, there's a book called Habitat Creation and Management for Pollinators, and it's free to download. Uh, so if you Google that, that um, book, uh, then that gives you all the advice you need to sow and grow um, habitat for bees. Yeah, something so simple, but so easy to be to be overlooked. Of course, um, if, if you're lazy like me, you don't have to cut the grass. Well, let's see. You've got yeah. an excuse to, uh, <laughs> to get out of the gardening for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what, what's next for your research? Where do you find yourselves traveling into or some areas that you think needs more explore, exploration? Okay, so one of the main things that we really hope for as part of the honey monitoring scheme is just to keep studying this over time. We've got our first year's results back in, which is fantastic. We heard from our first season and the uptake this year seems to be even better. We've already got 400 samples for the first honey season alone and we expect a similar number. But we really look forward to seeing what's happening in the future, because obviously a lot of the things Richard was talking about earlier, so climate change, change in species, invasive species moving in, these don't just happen in one season. They happen over a period of time. And we're really hoping as part of our scheme that we're going to be able to track a lot of this change happening in real time. We're going to archive the samples that get sent in. We're going to store them. We're going to keep the results and year on year. We're going to have a look and see what's actually happening to the UK pollinators, which is actually quite exciting to be able to study something as it's happening and as it's changing. That is really interesting. I mean, and you're going to have such extensive research and so much uh, archive, no archived uh, knowledge and whatnot about bees that probably a lot of people in the world don't even have or know about. Yeah, it certainly seems it is one of the first schemes of its kind in the world. So we should have a really, really in-depth knowledge even within the first few years, we're finding new stuff. Like we said, we're able to track things that we weren't even sure we'd find in our honey or how sensitive it would be. But using this DNA method really seems to be able to get access to things that we've never even seen before. Yeah, the, the honey samples are like uh, almost uh, an archive of what the bees, the honeybees were feeding on in that part of the country in that month of you know, 2019. So if we, if we keep these for, for the future, we'll be able to go back to them and see, you know, if bees are feeding on something different in 30 or 40 years time. Uh, and, and so this this could, you know, this this time capsule, we can open it up again and use it to look at change in the countryside, change in, in what bees are, eat, are feeding on and maybe link this to, to how bees are doing, um, you know, whether they're, they're declining and whether we can link that to changes in their diet or other things. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much, guys. Um, Will, have you got any more questions? I just, uh, just from my own personal uh, want to know, uh, what what would be the best outcome for the application of, of what you're, you know, all the data that you're capturing at the moment? I mean, I think um, 
the, the best application I could think of is if we can use this um, in the fullness of time to help explain why bees are declining. You know, if, if, um, if Lindsay can develop new techniques to look at maybe bee disease with, uh, with advanced molecular barcoding, or uh, a as I said, changes in diet, bee disease, linked to land use change and things like that. And if we can then use those, that information to improve the way we manage our environment for bees and help bees, then you know we can we can uh, halt the declines, maybe increase bees, uh, you know, by providing the right plant species for them to feed on, or manage diseases better. Uh, and and so as I say, it's about understanding the causes of decline and then ultimately helping bees um, uh, to to thrive in the countryside. Amazing, fantastic, amazing. That is really 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 interesting. Honestly, guys, thank you so much for for giving us some of your time to talk to us and. Uh, yeah, about this amazing thing that you guys have going on. <laughs> it's incredible. I'm so excited to see uh, how the research all turns out in the future. Um, I'm certainly going to be keeping an eye on it all. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested in any further information about the Honey Monitoring Scheme, we actually have a website, which is all linked into the main ceh.ac.uk website, which is thehoney.ceh.ac.uk. And you can just log on, you can find out more there. If you're someone that actually has honey, being developed in the garden by your bees, please, please, please sign up for the scheme. It's fantastic and we'd really like, and we're really interested in what's happening. So we'd like to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay and Richard. Um, it was really, really incredible and fascinating to hear what you guys are getting up to with the honey monitoring scheme. Yeah, it's really interesting. That I love a good bit of science and that's that's really exciting to see how, how science can be applied in the real world. Um, there's actually quite a lot to talk about. So we're going to do another episode in the future more on the application of honey with regards to making mead and about how those beautiful flavours that you get out of the flowers translate into the final product. But next week we're back again and we're going to be talking about the history of mead, which is a rich tradition across many, many cultures. So hopefully you can join us then. See you next week. Bye-bye.